Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. What we have done in the last few sermons is look at the Hora Babylon, religious Babylon, and her formation and what's going on. And I've taken my time to walk through that. And then we're now going to get into one of the most complicated passages in Revelation. It's not straightforward. It's very difficult. And that's why I've delayed this, because I wanted to have as much time as I could to walk us through it, because it is extremely complicated. I'll just give you that. If you've never heard it, it's a lot. Here's what i got to ask you to do. It's going to be like drinking from a fire hydrant. It's just going to open up the spigot, and then boom, it just comes blowing out, right? If you can get 10% of this, you're on your way. And I'm not saying that it's because if you haven't heard it one time, if you haven't heard it multiple times, it's a lot to take under. It's a lot to take in and metabolize and assimilate into your thinking because there's a lot going on in the text. That being said, the principle we want to walk away today with is this. It's the title of the message, Evil Destroys Herself. That's the lesson we're going to learn from this passage. Psalm 34, 21 says, Evil slay the wicked. So evil has a way of consuming itself. Evil has a way of destroying itself. And you can't get any better example than an individual by the name of Karl Panzram. You might not have heard of Karl Panzram. He lived in the early 1900s. He was put into a Minnesota Institute for Juvenile Delinquents because he needed reform, and they were trying to rehabilitate him. But there in the Minnesota Institute that was there to reform him and get him better, he was brutally raped, beat, betrayed by the, the people that worked in the Minnesota Institution and that, who were responsible for his care and rehabilitation. Well, anyway, he, he got out of that situation And he emerged enraged beyond measure. He became a burglar. Started stealing from everybody and anybody. In fact, he kept a record of every dollar amount that he stole. And he also then became an arsonist and burned down everything in his path. He eventually became a rapist. He raped over a thousand men and boys in his lifetime. He became a serial killer. He confessed to killing 21 people. And you look at that and you think, what happened? Evil begets evil. Evil was done to him. He didn't respond correctly and then goes out to get revenge and takes revenge on the entire world. Eventually, he was incarcerated and he was executed by hanging in 1930. They actually made a movie about him. James Wood played the character. The whole point of Karl Panzerum in his life was that evil begets evil. Evil destroys itself. Evil consumes itself. And it goes on a rampage. And that's what you're going to see here in the text. I'll show that to you when you get there. Let's backtrack just a little bit just to get the context. I'm not going to explain this part of the text because we went over it in two sermons. You can go back and listen to that. But it, it sets the tone of where we're going to be, okay? So we're looking at ecclesiastical Babylon. The formation of the one world religion that's coming and it's already here. Start in verse 1 with me just to backtrack. Then one of the seven angels 
who had seven bowls, came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. This is ecclesiastical Babylon. With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So remember, state and religion marry. The one world government and the one world religion will be married and they will support her, is the idea. Okay? So he carried me away in, in the spirit into the wilderness. It's talking about the Babylonian region that we discovered. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. We're going to unpack that today. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet. She's a ruler and she's adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. The idea is that she's rich, she's a ruler, and she's bringing in false religious ideas and idolatry and sexual immorality. And on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Now the idea is, is the mystery is that she is going to be supported by the governments of the world as the glue during the first half of the tribulation. The issue then becomes she is the major persecutor of tribulation saints during the first half of the tribulation. She massacres people. And I mentioned this to you before. The false religious movement that's gaining ground here eventually will kill people who disagree with her. Now, it's not happening here yet, but eventually it will, especially in the tribulation. That's where it's going. Okay, so now we start to go and unpack a little bit more, and we start in verse 7, and here's where we're at today. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Let's focus then on the last phrase, the seven heads and ten horns. What John is referring to is the Roman Empire that Daniel talked about. The fourth empire, the beast empire. And what I want to show you here is then, as you read Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Revelation 13, and you put this all together... What you get, and what John assumes you already know, is how this will unpack. Let me show you a couple bullet points. The first is you're going to have a Roman Empire that's in a united stage. That's the Roman Empire that was there in Jesus' day, right? Okay. Then what you're going to have, according to Daniel and John, you're going to have a two-division stage. There's going to be an eastern part and a western part, symbolizing the legs of the metallic man in Daniel chapter 2. Right now, we are currently in that state. The power broker of Russia is the eastern leg. The western side of Europe is the western leg, and that's the phase we're in. Rome has not went away. Rome is still here. You just don't see its imperialism. But the imperialism that I talked about is coming. Imperialism is that a foreign state wants to tell another state what to do. Hence, the U.N., The UN wants to tell every country what to do. And because we have so many leftists and globalists in our country who are politicians, they're marching in line with the globalists of the UN. They're willing to tell or do what the UN tells them to do, whether that's Agenda 21 or putting in Common Core into the curriculum of schools. You can see it all over the place. It's everywhere. 
That's called imperialism. Eventually, you and I, if, if the rapture doesn't occur, eventually we'll have some type of taxation from the UN. They're already trying to do that with carbon emissions, right? Because carbon emissions, they are, are now bad. They used to be plant food, which make a plant grow, are now bad. And so the issue is that we want to tax you on that. Well, what better way to tax you because you can't control how it floats in the air or whatnot. So that, that's beyond borders. So eventually you'll see a taxation. Again, it's losing ground because the science is coming out and they know it's a rigged game. It's, it's a, a hoax that's actually coming out. A lot of scientists disagree with it. But nonetheless, what they're trying to do is find a way to tax you as Rome did to Israel during Jesus' day. Roman taxation. It's imperialism. So that's what's forming. Now, what we're going to is a one-world government stage. And again, this is no conspiracy. This is what they're calling for. The globalists want this. This is why they want no borders. They don't want the United States putting up a border wall. And then it goes into, eventually becomes a one-world government. And that one-world government divides into ten kingdoms. And this is near future. And this goes through the first half of the tribulation. This is what is predicted. And John just assumes you understand that. And then the last one is the Antichrist stage where he wrestles control of the entire world and we have absolute imperialism, which will be the last half of the tribulation. Now, here's what John is trying to say. And we see these things in history. It's an ancient truth. It's an ancient truth that with this last stage, the Antichrist stage, which is where this is all going, what you have is when the state becomes a god to people, which is basically 50% of the United States budget is people who are dependent on the government. Did you know that? 50% of the U.S. budget is people who are dependent on the government. That's bad. That's called enslavement. Eventually, you move to a totalitarian state because of that. That's intentional, by the way. That's what happened in Venezuela. That's what happens in Cuba. So the state becomes a god. And then once the state becomes a god, the leader who comes up out of that state to control the state becomes a god himself. So the dictator and the state are virtually synonymous. And you can see this all through history, even biblical history. Pharaoh was Egypt, right? Nebuchadnezzar was Babylon. Alexander the Great was Greece. And the Caesars were Rome. And today, Hitler was Nazi Germany, right? So you start seeing the same little patterns pop up in history, and eventually it's going to go to where the one world is synonymous with the one leader. And hence, this ancient truth that we're seeing develop today, creating totalitarian regimes, which is what the left is trying to do here in America, is create a, a, a state of dependency of Americans depending on the government, and then eventually the government telling everyone what they're going to do. This is what California is doing, by the way. You're seeing a microcosm here in California of this bigger ancient truth. And then eventually the Antichrist will become synonymous with the one world government. Hence, as we move further in this text, the term beast 
we will be used synonymously with the man and the government. So John is capitalizing on an ancient truth and assuming you and I understand this truth that's been all through the Old Testament, that the man and the, the state are synonymous. So now we move to verse 8. And it's a flip-flop. He, he now goes from state to man. Verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit. The abuso, the abyss in Greek. Well, that's an odd state. That is not a reference to the Roman Empire. It did not stop existing. And then all of a sudden comes out of the bottomless pit. A government can't come out of the bottomless pit. Now John is switched and he's referring to the man, if you're following this. It's a a hermeneutical principle that you have to stay with and watch John flip-flop back and forth as he goes through the text. We're talking about the individual. We're talking about the Antichrist. But notice he was, is not, and ascends out of the bottomless pit is a reference, as we've studied in Revelation 13, of the death and counterfeit resurrection of the Antichrist is what that verse refers to. Now, just a little aside there about the abyss. I have a screenshot here of kind of understanding the underworld. And I've showed you this before, but obviously paradise is empty or Abraham's bosom is empty because at the ascension, Jesus took all the believers to be with God in heaven. And so today is absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But before the cross, you would have went to Abraham's bosom or paradise. And what did Jesus say to the guy on the cross? Today, you'll be with me where? In heaven? Paradise. Because that's where they would have went until the ascension. So paradise or the underworld of Abraham's bosom is empty now. But on the other side is Abaddon, Napoleon, or the pit. That's where we commonly say when people die without Christ, they go to hell. It's a temporary place of confinement before they're thrown into the lake of fire at the great white throne judgment. Tartarus, then, is another area where only demons and fallen angels go to who have committed atrocities that they are permanently bound by. Obviously, that's Genesis chapter 6. They are never getting out of that. And then when they go to the great white throne judgment, then they're cast in the lake of fire. They're not coming out of that area, Tartarus. The abyss, or what we're looking at right now in the text, is something different. It is a place where only fallen angels go for temporary confinement. As you recall in the Gospels, the demons would plead with Jesus, what? Not to send them to the abyss or the pit, the bottomless pit. It was a place, and usually people who were demon-possessed, the penalty would be there to go there for temporary confinement and then come out. But notice who's coming out of the pit. Who is it? It's the Antichrist. Whoa, whoa. Guys, humans go to Abaddon or Apollyon or the pit or hell. Fallen angels do not. Only humans do. Only fallen angels go to the Abuso. John is hinting at something. John is trying to show you there's something different about the Antichrist. 
And again, this is all deduction because you have to put it together with Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And you have to put it with Genesis 6. And you have to start saying, huh, something's different here. The conjecture, the theory is the Antichrist is not fully human. That he's a hybrid. What do you mean? Well, the hybrids that were created in Genesis 6 were a combination of fallen angels, human women that created Nephilim. And Nephilim were like Goliath. Goliath is a Nephilim. And Joshua had to go into the land and fight different tribes of Nephilim. It was very prominent. And I know that's like, wow, that's curling my hair, Brandon. That's crazy. I know. But this was the early teachings of not only Judaism, but early Christianity, until Christianity wanted to sanitize it to pagans. Because they didn't like how supernatural that was. It scared people. Well, I'm not a fan of the Catholic Church, as you know. But why in the Middle Ages did the Catholic Church have the doctrine of the incubi and secubi? Where demons would actually rape human beings. Not impregnate them, but rape them. Why did they have that and have that occurrence? Why does it happen today in Satanism or occultism? Where spirit creatures rape women. Why is that? Again, I'm not trying to be dogmatic about this. I'm just saying, is a common occurrence in the occult, the Catholic Church dealt with it in the Middle Ages, continues to deal with it, and we want to sanitize it as if, oh, let's just make this as clean as possible and not really get that evil. No, it is that evil. That the Antichrist is not fully human, I'm not going to be dogmatic, but something's there. Most Bible commentators try their best to deal with this text. And a lot of them say, well, it's not really uh, the Antichrist spirit coming out. It's Satan indwelling him coming out of the abuso. It never says Satan's coming out of the abuso. It says he is. His soul comes out of it. And so all I'm saying to you as a pastor is I'm trying to present to you as best I can. There's something going on here. Interesting enough. The very character of Nimrod that I brought to your attention about the founder of Babylon is a gibberim. He is not fully human. He was a hybrid. He is the first type of antichrist that points forward. Isn't it interesting that the antitype points to the ultimate? And he's half and half. You're not going to hear this in a regular sermon because no one wants to approach the subject. No one wants to talk about it. Well, Brandon, you're going to make people upset if you go there. It is what it is. Why does it say he comes out of the abyss? I'll let you chew on it. You make your decision. Because something's not right here. Something, by deduction, is not right. Now notice, let me another phrase, a bottomless pit. The reason why the abyss is called the bottomless pit, as you know, the core of the earth is round. The globe. Hence, that's why the term bottomless can be used on a confinement area that is circular or like a globe or like a ball because there is no bottom in a ball. Does that make sense? Hence, that's why the term bottomless pit is used. Now, we know that there's lava and magma in the earth's center, but we also understand on a spiritual level that these are confinement areas in the middle of our planet for these creatures and for even human beings who are in hell. So it is proper to think of hell being much like the center of the earth. Lava and awful, awful conditions. That's why it says blackest darkness. Because no light gets in there in the core of the earth. 
There's no light. It's lava. It's hot. Matches perfectly with the descriptions that Jesus gave of hell and even the lake of fire. So the abuso is where they go for temporary confinement, and he comes out of that. Now, we obviously know from other passages that the Antichrist is resurrected. Just as a refresher, read with me Revelation 13, 2. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of the heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. By the way, if you get a commentary that says, well, that's a fake wound, he really wasn't dead, then you've got a problem in hermeneutics. The same term that's being used for the Antichrist is the term being used for Jesus in Revelation 5. That Jesus was mortally wounded. Now let me ask you this. Was Jesus dead? Yes, he has to be dead, right, on the cross. He has to die, be buried, and then resurrect, right? It's a true resurrection. By the way, the Greek is the same. It's the same phrase. So when a commentator says, well, it's not really, he didn't really die. He just, they thought he was dead. You can't do that with the language, the language John is using is the identical language with, used with Jesus. So if you're going to say Jesus died, you have to say the Antichrist died. You're locked into that hermeneutically from, from a linguistic standpoint. And so there's really no way around this. Somehow, and again, this is Christian philosophy at this point because it doesn't answer this. Somehow either God gives Satan the power to resurrect the Antichrist or or something. I don't know. I, this is where my brain goes on tilt. But can Satan kill? Yes. Can he do miracles? Yes. People involved in Satanism can do miracles. Why would I think he cannot do the supernatural? He killed all of Job's family. He actually tampered with the weather. If you read Job, Satan is very powerful. He has a lot of power. So again, he's on a leash with God, and God can permit him to do certain things, and does. And perhaps he allows Satan to resurrect this individual, the Antichrist, because I don't know how else to interpret this. Because I've studied this for hours. There's nowhere in getting around this. This happens. And look what the world does. They all marvel. The world marvels and follows him. No wonder they think he's God. No wonder they think he's Christ. He's doing the same thing that Christ did. So they worshiped the dragon and gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? The guy was killed and he came back to life. Who could, who could fight him is the idea. Jump to verse 14 with me. And he, the false prophet, deceives those who dwell on the earth, who by signs which was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded, notice the word wounded, by the sword and then lived. So again, continues to reiterate a resurrection. Understand, guys, what's happening here. The program of Satan is a counterfeit to God's program. The counterfeit to the church is the whore of Babylon. The counterfeit to Jesus is the Antichrist. The counterfeit to the Holy Spirit is the false prophet. And the counterfeit of God the Father is Satan himself. He's just simply counterfeiting everything. And then he counterfeits a a resurrection from the dead just like Jesus did. Hence, it is nothing but a fake counterfeit of trying to usher in a fake kingdom. Have you ever heard all these leftists and globalists saying, if we just get this all figured out, we can get a utopia? 
They use the word utopia. Have you noticed that? This Marxist communistic utopia. What it really is, is a counterfeit kingdom to Jesus' kingdom. That's what it is. That the kingdom of God that's going to come on the planet. Nonetheless, look at his end. And he goes to perdition. Perdition means destruction. It's a euphemism for the lake of fire. That's where the Antichrist will go. By the way, you want to see his end? Here it is. Revelation 19.20. And the beast, or the Antichrist, was captured with him, the false prophet. This is by Jesus, who works signs in his presence. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. When Jesus comes back, he kills the Antichrist, by the way, and false prophet, resurrects him, takes him, casts him into the lake of fire, just like that. No problem for him, because he's God, obviously. That's the end of where this is going. So, return back to the text, and it says, And those who dwell on the earth, these are the earth dwellers, will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Little technical aspects here that you need to understand. Earth dweller, or dwell, those who dwell on earth, is a technical term for they have reached the point of no return. They're not coming back. It's used 11 times in Revelation. And notice that their names are not written in the book of life. There's two books and then other books, but the two main books are the book of life and the Lamb's book of life. Those are not the same. Don't confuse them. The book of life, God wrote everybody's name who has ever lived in the book of life. When you cross a line of unbelief and you're not coming back to belief in God, your name is then blotted out of that book. You blot yourself out, basically, because of unbelief. And you can see this in Psalm 69 and Exodus 32. The Lamb's book of life is different. As someone comes to faith in Jesus, their name is added to the Lamb's book of life, written into it. But the book of life, your name is blotted out if you don't come to faith in Messiah. So there's two books working. The other books are a chronology of our lives that we're going to be, are going to be used to uh, examine everything we did. Nonetheless, notice that it says, from the foundation of the world. Do not let your text put the word before. If you have an ESV which is slanted towards Calvinism, your ESV will put before. That's the wrong word. In Greek, I think I put it up there, it's apo. It is not pro. If it was before, it would use the word pro, but it's apo, which means, just like the text we're using, from, to be separated from the whole. And what's happening here is that those people whose names are not or at least blotted out of the book of life, from Genesis to now, are the earth dwellers, and they will believe that the Antichrist is God. Because he says, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. What is it saying? There's a reason that these earth dwellers have crossed the line as they're alive. Okay? We usually say people have a chance to accept Christ until the day they die, right? These people, though, have made a decision while they're living to cross the line because God drew the line in Revelation 14. 
At the midpoint of the tribulation, God sends an angel to all the earth to tell all the earth dwellers, if you receive the mark of the beast, you've reached the point of no return. You're going to the lake of fire for that. That's the line God draws in the tribulation. He's not drawing it now. He draws it in the future. And what's happening here is these earth dwellers cross that line. Because the minute you take the mark, then your name's blotted out of the book of life. And you have no chance of salvation at that point in time. Again, future aspects. And so hence, they will believe the resurrection of the Antichrist. And again, there's a penalty for, for crossing this line. The penalty, obviously, God said in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that he sends them a powerful delusion that they would believe the lie. That the Antichrist rose from the dead and that he is God. And so, as a penalty for crossing that line, they are deluded. God gives them over to their own delusions. And they absolutely are simply going crazy at this point in time. They're not thinking straight. It's very, very scary to think about this. Let's return to the text, verse 9. Here is a mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, and the other is yet to come. Wow. That's a mouthful. That's pretty hard to unpack, but let's do our best. If you have your handout in your bulletin, I'd like you to take that out at this point because we have to kind of get our, our grip around this. You should turn to this one right here. That, this side is what we're going to be dealing with right now. To make sense out of what John is saying, because he goes, here's a mind that has wisdom. What he is saying is, this is going to take a lot of study to get this figured out. You can figure it out. It's not impossible. But this is a lot of study is what John is really saying. You're going to have to have a lot of wisdom to unpack this. Well, let's do that today. He says, five have fallen, right? The seven heads are seven mountains, okay, in which the woman sits. Okay, And then he says there's also seven kings. So he's equating mountains and kings together. Okay. In biblical terminology, anytime you see mountains, and it's not referring to literal mountains, mountains means governments. That's just a Hebrew idiom. Mountains equal governments or rulerships or kingdoms. And then he even says the seven heads on this this beast are seven mountains, seven governments, And there are also seven kings of this government. That's what he's trying to say. Do not let commentators tell you that this is the Catholic Church because the Catholic, the Vatican sits on seven hills in Rome. That's not what it's saying because he equates it to seven rulers, not literal mountains. And by the way, what he is saying is he he says they're sequential. Mountains can't be sequential. Mountains are all existing at one time. So it's a euphemism for kingdoms or governments. Okay, gotcha, John. So what he is saying, he says, five have fallen, one is currently, and one is to come. Seven. So just taking him at his word, what we're seeing is the beast empire will have seven phases in history. And in John, when he's writing this in 95 AD, he says, five of the phases have already fallen. The one I'm currently under is current with me as I, can, as I write contemporaneously. And then 
one is coming in the future, a seventh one. That's what we're looking for. We are with John, by the way, in the sixth phase. When it started with John, it's still with us. It's called the imperial phase of Rome. And so this is how to take what John is saying. It's sequential in history. And then at the bottom, we'll get to this. When we get to the seventh one, there are ten contemporary kings plus one. That plus one is the Antichrist. Let's go back to the text. I'll get more in depth in just a second. And when he comes, he must continue for a short time. Now he flip-flops and goes back to the Antichrist. The Antichrist will really only rule for three and a half years of the whole world. Verse 11, the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth. And is of the seven is, and is going to perdition or going to the lake of fire. Now, he threw in another formula in there. I'll unpack that in just a second. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as of yet, but they receive authority for one hour as the kings with the beast. So, what we have talked about, and I've mentioned this before, that the ten kings will break up the entire one world government into ten confederations or ten areas that they control. By the way, this is what they came up with, the globalists. I didn't come up with this. They did. This is their stuff. This is how they want to divide the world up into ten areas. Isn't that interesting? How did they know that the Bible predicts ten kingdoms? They didn't. But God knows. Isn't that interesting? Let's go back to these. These are of one mind. All these kings come together and they will give their power and authority to the beast. Interesting. They all have one mind on the same mindset and they give their power to the Antichrist. How does that happen? Daniel reveals this. Jump to Daniel 7. Hang with me, man, or I'll lose you like a wet bar of soap. Stay with me. This is the most critical point. This is Daniel talking about the beast. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was very different from the, all, all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of, teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured and broke into pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. And the ten horns, there's the ten there, that were on its head, and the other horn which came up before which three fell. Namely, that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows, talking about the Antichrist. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. Whoa. So hang with me. So Daniel is predicting out of the ten kings comes an eleventh. John says, though, he's of the seven chronologically or sequentially, but he's also an eighth king. How does he get from 11 to 8? Because the Antichrist takes three of the areas under him and destroys them. Hence, from being 11, he's 8. If that makes sense. I hope. It's a hard one. Go back to your handout real quick. And I'll show you why this is important to know. This is not just information for, you know, how many angels dance on the head of a pin kind of information. You're in some pretty deep stuff right now, guys. More deep than most churches are willing to take you. 
The beast in the Roman Empire is sequential. It has seven sequential eras. The eras, if you go back in history that John assumes we're doing, is saying we see the eras of the Tarkin kings, the consulors, the plebeians or dictators, the republicans and decimers, the triumvirates, and then contemporary with John was imperialism under the Caesars that started in 27 B.C. and goes all the way to the middle of the tribulation. We're in that imperialistic phase. The seventh, obviously, the Antichrist, is absolute imperialism. A one-world government controlled by ten kings. But in this thing, there's eleven. Where Remember, the Antichrist here takes three of them out. Hence, seven plus one is eight. So as John said, he is the seventh sequentially, but he is the eighth contemporarily. Thus, we have identified who the Antichrist is in the future. He is that guy of the beast empire. The final stage, the Antichrist stage, is future midpoint of the tribulation to the second coming with seven kings under him controlling the entire globe. Okay, what is all this about? This is where things are heading. So when people talk today about globalism, when people talk about no borders, when people talk about a cashless currency... That's where this is going. It's that evil, guys. And they're going to sell it to you as if this is some wonderful thing that all humanity needs to come under. This new movie, have you seen? They're going to have a thing where they have a movie about Neil Armstrong going to the moon and being the first man to step on the moon. What flag, just if you know your history, did Neil Armstrong plant on the moon? American, the stars and stripes is up there on the moon. And guess what the movie is going to do? They're not having that scene. Because it was a global thing. Really? I know this is complicated, but on the ground level, what's happening? They want you and they want our kids to be more loyal to a globalist government rather than America. That's why the schools are, are, you know, they don't want to say the Pledge of Allegiance. They want to say the Pledge of the World. We give our allegiance to the UN. You know, stupid things like that. that this is why they're saying that America's evil. America's bad, racist, xenophobic, homophobic, and every other name under the book, right? This is why you see the attack on Trump. And you think, why are they attacking him? He's doing a lot of things that are good because he's trying to stop globalism. And so you have to see the bigger picture. We are being beat up for American pride. They're making movies where they adulterate history. Our history books in Common Core are just nothing but a bunch of rhetoric saying how bad we were. No country's perfect, but no country ever gets close to what America did. Never in history. So you have to understand why John, is John going so complicated is he wants you to understand what's going on around you, what they're telling your kids in school. You tell your kids that God wants nation states. He wants borders. 
language, culture, borders. That's what the Bible presents. Don't let your kid be a globalist, touting globalist things because their teacher said something. Look, I, we have a lot of good teachers in here. Got, we have a school administrators. They tell me what's going on. I know what's going on. There is a concerted effort in the public schools to brainwash our kids towards globalism. And you have to be aware, as a grandparent and even a parent. That's my soapbox, but that's what's going on. Let's go back to verse 14. These will make war with the Lamb. They actually try to fight Jesus, and the Lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen are called uh, chosen and faithful. That's us. We come back and we see Jesus fight against them, trying to fight him. Can you believe that? It's insane. They would fight God. That's how crazy they are. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are the peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues, the Gentiles. So she's over them, right? And the ten horns which you saw on the beast will hate the harlot, Make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Now, there is the principle. Evil consumes evil. So the ten kings that support the whore turn on her and destroy her? Yes. Well, why? Why did they do that? Because the Antichrist has come to power. And he will not allow any worship of anything else other than him. So when it's useful, Satan gets rid of his tools and trashes them. And so the evil of the Antichrist destroys the evil of the whore of Babylon. But look who's behind all of it, though. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled And the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth, which obviously is Babylon and Iraq. But notice that phrase right here, until the words of God are fulfilled. That's your key. Isn't that ingenious of God? He just lets evil play itself out. And evil consumes evil. Because he permitted or allowed the Antichrist to come on the scene, he takes and destroys the first satanic mystery, which is Mystery Babylon. Isn't that amazing? This is why people ask me, Brandon, why does God let the devil keep going? Why does he, let, why does he just get rid of the devil and put him in the lake of fire now? And It would be a, a lot better world without him. I would agree. I, I, yeah, it would be great to have a world without Satan and the demons. But, This is a little picture behind the veil of understanding why God allows evil in the world. Evil destroys evil. It consumes itself. And so God just lets it play out. And because he lets it play out, it destroys itself. This is what Shakespeare came up with King Lear. I know the kids don't read King Lear or any Shakespeare in school anymore. Now they read documents and stupid things on environmentalism. They don't even read the classics. Have you ever read King Lear? Shakespeare knew this. The whole principle of King Lear was that evil begets evil and evil destroys itself. And at the end of the play, everyone's dead. And everyone says, well, that's a depressing thing of Shakespeare. Most of his things are depressing, my gosh. It's just, but what he's trying to point out is, 
When you start off evil, you end evil, and everything is destroyed. That is an ancient principle. And somehow Shakespeare got his hands around that. It's the same principle you're studying today, that evil destroys evil. It just keeps perpetuating. It destroys good, too, but it destroys evil in its path. And God is letting that be used to do that. Principle and application, that's a tough one. And we'll end on this. That is a stern warning to all of us And when you see this passage, that evil destroys evil. The Antichrist destroys the whore of Babylon. Wow. That's why there are so many warnings for you and I in Scripture not to practice evil, not to allow wickedness into our life. We think we're not doing it, but if you have skewed values, if we have distortions in our thinking, you'll let it come in, and then it starts wreaking havoc in your life. One of the things you learn about evil or sin in itself is that it cannot be contained. It's like a cancer that once it's introduced into your life, it permeates all through life. It affects every relationship. And you let that death principle happen and it starts destroying everything. I told my class this morning, why is it that people can't see how destructive their life is becoming. You would think on a rational level, if people looked around and they saw their lives and like, wow, things are really out of control. I'm not functioning correctly. I'm kind of dysfunctional here. And, you know, and I'm doing dysfunctional relationships. And why are they not saying that to themselves? How come they can't see it? Ah, you got it. They can't see it. That's why. They don't even know what's happening. That's why they sleep at night. They're not like you, you can't sleep at night because, hey, man, something's weighing on your head because what you did or you feel guilty or convicted. They're not like that. The minute you introduce evil or sin into your life, it distorts your perception of reality. And you start thinking you're not doing anything wrong. You will justify what you're doing, and no one will be able to, to talk to you about that. This is why people say, I, I don't know, so-and-so blew a gasket. So-and-so flipped their lid. I can't figure them out. I don't understand what's happening. How come they, they don't see us? Because their reality is distorted. And the penalty is that if you live there a long enough time, it will continue to distort your mind. And you will go crazy. That's what the message of the earth dwellers. They're seeing all this happen. And they're just continuing to go down the path to where Jesus has to destroy them. They fight God. They actually try to fight God. How insane is that? That's where evil can take you. It creates craziness in us. That is a sober message, a point we all need to heed. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, 
where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.